Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way Podcast. Uh, a while ago, I think largely due to influence from my dear friend, Alan Prussian, I learned about axiology. I learned about intrinsic, extrinsic, and systemic. It's probably 10 years ago. And that model has helped me understand a lot of different things about life, business, leadership, relationships. And so today, as the topic is on systemic racism. And before I introduce our my guests, I wanted to, um, I guess you could call it a disclaimer, which is um, we're talking about systemic racism today, two white people <laughs> talking about systemic racism. Um, and to be clear, we are not talking about the experience of racism. Um, we are talking about the systemic issues that, that sustain it or cause it. And I think that's a very important thing to remember because, and we'll get way more into this shortly, is that people assume they say, "Well, I'm, 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 I'm not racist. Uh, there can't, that, so there's no problem." Well, we're not talking about you being a racist. We're talking about systemic racism, which which is different. So, with that backdrop, which I don't normally do, but I feel like it was important to do, I want to introduce you to my friend Sarah Alvarado. Sarah is a has a real estate practice by trade, correct, Sarah? Yep. And but you also have a very unique calling. Um, and tell us, before we did get into the 3Ds, tell us a little bit about that kind of arriving at where you're at with this thing that you're doing with your business and with your status, if you will. Sure. I'll start more on like a chronological timeline. I got sure. into real estate. I, I met my husband in Mexico and we moved to Madison with our 18 month old at the time in 2002. And at that time, I couldn't find a job and I got a real estate license. Um, and I had my my dad was in real estate growing up. So it was more of a backup plan. And Carlos then ended up getting into real estate with me later in 2006. And in 2008, we opened our own brokerage. And it was in 2014 that I we had a race equity report in the Madison, Wisconsin area come out. And I was at one of the presentations for it. And at that point, I was a very ignorant white woman who was like, what? All of this is happening in my city. And, I, you know, it's so diverse here. And um, and it was also around the time when Mike Brown was murdered. And so I had some personal awakenings around that point. And I got into more of the racial justice work between 2014 and 2019 and it was then in 2019 when I stepped out of the brokerage aspect. Carlos now leads the company, so I'm not part of the operations. I don't sell anymore, um, but I've been working on a down payment program and really a movement is what we're hoping for within the real estate and lending institutions and industries. Um, so day to day, I'm working on Own It, Building Black Wealth. Um, my husband is running the real estate company and among many other things. So that's kind of how I fit yeah. into real estate in a way. Yeah, that is, that's fascinating on multiple fronts because it's easy, you know, well, I'll put it this way. You had, like you said, it kind of an awakening um, and you saw that once you see something, you can't unsee it. So therefore it becomes a matter of values. It's like, if I see this and I don't do something, then what does that actually mean about my values? And I, I had something similar happen 
Um, I've talked about it at length, but there were kind of two almost bookend, you know, um, things that happened. One was George Floyd's murder, and um, and at the, at the on the other end of that later was the January sixth insurrection, mm-hmm. and I just had this like I can't do things the way I'm doing them anymore as it relates to what I do for a living. I have mm-hmm. to do something about it. And a few years later, Massive was born and um, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're taking on, we're empowering, um, equipping business leaders who've had an awakening and want to take on systemic injustice. Um, so, so let's get into this thing with systemic, with systemic racism. And you're going to have your perspective in particular, because your boots on the ground with um, with uh, inequities related to primarily uh, black people, but I'm sure it applies to all people of color as well. Share a few of the statistics that you share with me when we first met. I think that's a good place to start related to a deep dive, some st- statistics about the systemic racism in, within the financial industry mm-hmm. in particular. Okay. Um, I don't have them in front of me, but I do have some in my brain. So if yeah. I'm off a little bit, um, that's okay. Your <laughs> audience, please. <laughs> yeah. So in Madison, well, let's just stick with the wealth gap first. Um, white families have 7.8 times more wealth than black families, and I believe the numbers come out to like $24,000 for black families. It's more for Hispanic families compared to like a hundred thousand plus for, for white families. Mm -hmm. Um, And understanding the wealth gap is really critical when we're talking about real estate because lending has had so many explicit discriminatory policies and practices, um, government created. So um, in Madison, well, nationally, I know that 45% of um, homeowners are black compared to 70% of white families. And in Madison, it's even lower. It's like 15% compared to 60%. And the reason we talk about um, black wealth and black statistics, there's a couple of reasons. One is it's more disparate. Like there's a huger gap. Hispanic is typically Latino is is higher um, in terms of the statistics. And if we can address some of the anti-blackness within the systems and policies, mm-hmm. we're automatically supporting you know, Asian and Latino and Hmong mm-hmm. and, and anyone who is um, marginalized. Also, in the world of real estate, a hundred percent of the covenants and restrictions that were written across the United States included anti-Blackness, whether it was you can't sell to people of Ethiopian descent or Negro or like whatever terms they used. There were some that was, you know, no Germans, no Irish, no um, Jews, but those were here and there. Mm-hmm. compared to 100%, which were anti-Black. So there really is an anti-Blackness within real estate and and, race, and lending institutions that we are addressing. Right, yeah. I think, too, is that we, I don't think people realize how deeply embedded these influences are. When you combine, especially sort of, let's call it Eurocentric, 
um, you know, or sometimes that in the the more wokey term is colonizers, <laughs> but that Eurocentric perspective, um, which uh, put great emphasis on sort of being, you know, the kings were chosen by God type of thing. And so there was this sort of supremacy within that, not just related to whiteness, but supremacy related to bloodline. Yes. And you bring that into the United States and, you know, for, by some miracle, we had a constitution or, or that was able, has been able to flex to be much more inclusive than it used to be in its, in, in, in its language. However, the influence of both white supremacy and patriarchal structures is pervasive. And we just don't realize it on a day-to-day -day basis because we're benefiting from it. Um, and people say this to me quite a bit, and I refer to myself as a swam, a straight white American male, uh, is like, why do you have to bring race into it? It's like, because white people need to know how to talk about race, especially from a systemic issue. We, we're not going to experience racism. That's not empathy. You can feel compassion for someone and the and them experiencing racism. and But the system doesn't change from compassion. Mm -hmm. The system changes from action. Right. Um, it changes from actually doing something. And that's why I think it's important to have these potentially very uncomfortable conversations about the origins of our country. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I love our country. I'm a patriot. I believe in what we're doing here, but we also have to be honest about how far back the things that you are talking about, how, how much they influence us still today. Yeah. I mean, it just to get real, real, mm -hmm. someone who was helping people buy and sell and, you know, you, you know, the basics of history, we're selling stolen land. We're helping, right. you know, we are moving these transactions. Right. And I remember really clearly in a transaction, a buyer and a seller were arguing over a tree and who, you know, where the tree was because who was going to have insurance on it. And, right. um, and we don't own, I mean, that's just like, it, it goes against everything that, Native Americans stand for in terms of right. like, our job is to care for the earth and not. Right. So it's gross. There's a lot of really <laughs> grossness in, yeah. in being in real estate. And um, for me, my, my awakening process was definitely personal first. And then, you know, you move into the interpersonal mm -hmm. and I didn't understand, like for many years I was working in real estate and I, and I was doing the work, but I didn't understand how I was perpetuating Mm -hmm. racism within the work I was doing. Um, right. My perspective was, you know, I, I'll help anyone. It's just that black and brown people aren't really knocking on the door. And, you know, my husband is a native Spanish speaker and we do help Spanish speaking clients. And so we're doing all the right things. And how can I desegregate neighborhoods? I'm just one realtor. And right. it's that, that concept of like, how did neighborhoods get segregated how right. did schools get segregated? Why are we talking about good schools and bad schools? We have to understand how the system is working for us to actually feel like we can do something about it. Right. I think it's also important to, to point out that the mindset that we have about, um, the, the mindset, the paradigm that we have about um, justice, uh, like the justice system has an overlapping impact on financial um, 
the financial systems. So for example, you know, we have this very punitive view of crime. Um, and again, I'm not saying defund the police or anything like that. I think that's stupid. But I do think that we are dishonest in our in our discussions as humans, especially white people, about how much of crime is related to socioeconomic issues. Number and so, but just as this example as a systemic issue, you get convicted of um, you know two, your third conviction uh, for marijuana possession should be should be legal separate podcast. <laughs> Um, and then now you have to say you're a felon when you get a job and when, and then you get a low paying job. And then they also, the banks will do a background check as well. And they'll find that you're a felon and the likelihood, I don't know the exact statistic of any color of a person that's a convicted felon of getting a loan for a house is extremely low. I don't know what the exact number is, but I think it's less than 10%, um, can get approved for a loan. And that's, where you see this meshing of these various systems that were designed to sort of maintain power structures. Yeah. So. I mean, when I realized how the police was intertwined, the police system and the justice system within the real estate systems, when it was, um, so the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. So at that time, people could move into any neighborhood they wanted to if they had access, um, which really is the biggest issue is access to money when, well, we don't need to get into that now. But 1968, so much, so many homes have been purchased by so many white people. There's so many FHA loans, like there was a lot of money poured into creating new neighborhoods and homeownership. Um, but mostly the majority went to white folks. So then when black people had the opportunity and brown people had the opportunity to move into other neighborhoods and then the white people in the neighborhoods didn't want them in the neighborhoods because it impacted the value because of redlining where specifically yeah. the bank said, based on race, this neighborhood is devalued. And therefore these people moving into white neighborhoods will impact the value of your home. So where someone might not have been racist at all, they now all of a sudden care about the color of somebody's skin because the lending institutions and the realtor institutions said that that that, that based on someone's skin color, it would impact the value of your home. Yes. So exactly. like, where is the possibility that systems and systemic racism actually impacts personal biases? Because there are right. people there. I mean, there's plenty of interviews out there where there's like, I didn't really mind them being my neighborhood, but because yes. it was going to lower the value of my home. Now we're talking about my money right. and now I'm sorry, but, and so right. I'm getting back to the police. There were these, you know, these neighbors would come out and be like trying to get people out of their homes. And the police would then be supporting the white families and, and actually saying the black family that moved into this home is actually creating all of this, um, all of these problems in the neighborhood, and then who was getting literally removed from their house? Right. Like, it's yes. just so interconnected. It's mind blowing. Yes. Yeah, and then there's, you know, there's some blatant hypocrisy too. Um, is you take, you can take people on the on the that would say they're progressives, and let's just say they live in Brooklyn, and they're a super progressive couple. They're you know save the environment, all the things, check all the boxes. 
Yet the reason that they live in Brooklyn is because the property values went up and it displaced black families. And, you know, I don't think, I think it's very difficult to be uh, metaphorically farm to table, like consistent with your values all the time, because we don't know necessarily where something comes from. We don't necessarily know. But if we can see systemic issues, we can challenge, challenge, change, leave systems that are inherently unjust. Um, it's not just about what you stand for verbally. It's like what you do with your dollars mm -hmm. um, and who you who you buy from. And again, you know, uh, there's there, that's there's a whole other rabbit trail to go down there. So, so what do you think? It's 2024. What do you think is sustaining some of these inherently racist elements of the system right now? It could be within real estate or finance or just in general. What's sustaining it? Um. I think there's a lot of coded language and coded policies that people can't really see how clear it is, like zoning issues um, have a lot of, you know, whether there can be rental properties in certain neighborhoods. Um, so coded language and then practices that have that have passed through that really aren't necessarily policed, but they're practices. Um, so and I, I guess this is maybe more of a model, but like within the real estate industry and lending, it's a lot of commission based. And so when you look at who is in a position to purchase purchasing power and where money comes from, we don't have redlining anymore, but we have um, we have where money comes from as being critical when you're writing an offer to purchase. And down payment assistant programs primarily are geared towards black and brown families, but because they can't be race-based, they're not. Um, and those have contingencies on offer to purchases, whereas family money, which actually is a policy versus a practice, there are certain loan programs where family money is okay, but other sorts of grants and et cetera, that's not okay. So you could have family money coming into a transaction. So many transactions have family money, but nobody knows and it's not on the offer to purchase and there's no extra contingencies. Um, and especially in the markets now, whereas if you are applying for a down payment assistance program, there's a contingency on your offer. So if a seller has five offers and there's and one is a cash offer, or all of them are have financing that look like your typical 30-year fixed. And then there's one with a down payment assistance contingency financing that's at the bottom of the barrel. Um, and then the practice really is where the money comes from, or I guess I was getting back to the practice of the commission-based Mm -hmm. So whereas someone might call in and say, I'm looking for in our area, $200,000, you can't buy much with $200,000. So, you know, the, the median is more around 400. Um, the service that people get, if they have an accent, depending on how they talk, depending on what their price range is. And so it's not, they, they wouldn't say it's race-based, the, the kind of service that they're giving based on, you know, oh, they don't get a call back or they don't get right. the same amount. Um, right. But when you look at, where money is and how it's working and who has access to ownership. Yeah, there's a lot of black and brown people who are in the $200,000 price range and they're not getting good service and they're getting consistently right. denied without any kind of support and, and, and. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know just firsthand um, a number of, I'm, I'm thinking of 
black friends now uh, that have told stories. These are successful people, successful entrepreneurs. Um, and the even in with high credit scores and all the things on paper, yet they still had to jump through extra hoops. And there's also, and this is the thing that's very, very difficult to legislate, which is why I think you know the focus should be on elevating consciousness, not just passing laws. I think you have to have both. But um, the the social social network of unconscious bias, the where and 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 it's sort of this language of sort of false inclusivity, um, and so I think that also kind of perpetuates it that there are certain things that if a bunch of people are doing unconscious practicing unconscious bias, what makes it unconscious is that they don't know. Like on the surface, if you pointed it out, they would not even necessarily recognize. And that's where I was too. I was like, oh, this thing, this thing is this, there's social systemic racism in this or sexism or or whatever. And again, I'm not looking, uh, you know, that we should all go out looking to be get offended by this. It's not about that. It's about seeing it and changing it. So before we get into debunking, I'm curious about what are some of the specific ways, if you if you if you feel like sharing that, the the work you're doing is how is that creating systemic change related to um, yeah your efforts? I'm really curious about that. So basically, we were a a group of um, people a lot of, um, not a lot, because there aren't a lot, but some black and brown realtors and lenders and people who got together who were like, what could we do if we were to do something? Like, let's even just talk about the issues that we're seeing locally. Um, And a lot of it is that we don't even have a lot of black and brown realtors and lenders and people in the real estate. So like, then there's the conversation of where and how is it what does it look like to even get into the into the industry and where can we create mentorship programs etc but we were talking about the problem at at scale and we kept coming back to down payment assistance programs are so the, the restrictions are so high they make it so hard so to even fit into the possibility of getting qualified then to get your offer accepted, like I explained earlier, it's just ridiculous how much paperwork people have to get into. And then if you think about it, like the people who actually don't fit into that lower price point where for down payment assistance, it's usually a needs base. You have to be like, you know, within this lower income, but folks who have access, you know, they're, they're making good money. They have high credit scores. They don't necessarily have family money, which is where a lot of people get the down payment money from, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we create a completely new down payment program where it's not an assistance program, it's not a grant, there's no payback, it's literally the community gifting money to black and brown families who have explicitly been denied it through real estate um, with all of the ways that they've been explicitly explicitly denied based on race. So it's a down payment as it's a grant for $18,000 and it doesn't come up on the offer to purchase. It, there's no contingencies. Um, and then there's um, a education program that goes with it that is led by black and brown educators. Um, connections are really critical for folks. Um, when you don't grow up in a household where your parents owned, that's critical. So mm-hmm. it's creating the community and the space for understanding that this, that t- to build wealth through homeownership, 
it it was systemically problematic for black and brown families. And that's the reason. So it's highlighting the injustices versus just making it, it's it's removing the whitewashing of how a lot right. of financial yes. literacy and homeownership is taught. Right. Um, so it's eliminating that and then really just access to money. And, and that is like, how does family gifting work and how can we mimic that without it being family money? Right. Um, and so far we've been able to, get 10 families into homes. And we've had about 200 families go through the education program. We've raised $700,000. Where it becomes a movement is that the money is coming from the real estate industry and in that the, the request is, the call to action within our industries is, what would it look like if um, all of the people who benefit financially at closing, no matter what closing it is, which mostly they're white people at the table, they're white buyers, white sellers, white yeah. realtors, white yeah. lenders, title company, insurance agents, inspectors, majority white, if all of those people were to contribute a portion or a percentage of their earnings of every transaction into the down payment fund. Right. It could be as low as $25. It could be like the grocery store situation. Yeah. Or for some realtors, they're contributing 1%. We've had sellers contribute a whole $15,000 because at one point we were $15,000 grants. So there's a lot of possibility for a redistribution of wealth through this program. Right. And it goes to what I I strongly believe related to this is the you know, capitalism with some consciousness and there's you know John Mackey's book Conscious Capitalism that talks about this is 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 one of the an, uh antidotes to this is that because it's a system, it's it's a complex adaptive system. Uh, the, the the market, the U.S. market is all 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 capitalism is a complex adaptive system. But the U.S. market is because we have a very unique model compared to other countries. And so when it changes, it comes from uh, very interesting pressure points. So for example, um, the Respect for Marriage Act that was passed uh, a couple of years ago was passed largely due to corporate pressure on Republicans. The Democrats have been for been been uh you know for codifying the right to marry whoever you want for a while, of course. But um it was corporate pressure, which goes back to one of the things we say at massive all the time is social pressure and market pressure are the same thing. But what you're talking about here is a specific example of leverage that someone can contribute to not just and this is why I love it. It kind of gives me the chills, not just working within the system for people like, like you talk about with like a donation that is for a grant or, you know, the kind of the classic models. And I'm, I'm very pro nonprofit, but there are some limits to it, um, especially when it comes to finances because of laws, as you, as you talked about. But in this particular case, the contribution will change the system because it is, it is self-perpetuating it's going to evolve and iterate and i think it's i think it's remarkable and it it goes to a theory that i have that once you see a systemic issue it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be social justice related it could be any systemic issue but especially when it involves inequities with humans there is always something you can do besides just feel bad about it or give money to it there's always something you can do so 
Yeah, no, I, and, and it's interesting because we've had more community members contributing financially than we have the real estate industry. We feel like the real estate industry is a long game. Like that's going to take a yeah. while, but the grassroots perspective of it, when we have, we had a group of neighbors get together and they, they've read the book, The Color of Law. They, they mm-hmm. have been reading all of the books and listening to all the podcasts. And they were like, we know we've gotten so much wealth through real estate. And they ended up contributing $90,000 between the five of them. Um, and when they go to sell their house, which might be this year, it might be in five years, one of the questions they're going to ask their realtor, and they're probably going to hire a black or brown realtor is, um, and if they don't, they're going to ask, what are you, what, how are you contributing? How are you part of this? Right. And like, our right. hope is that it's this ambassador program that people will be able to go to the website and pick who they want to work with. So you're, you know, you have these different, the, so you imagine a realtor going to a listing appointment who could care less right? Like literally there's plenty of people who really don't care. They're really in it for the money and that's fine. But if the seller is like, yeah, I, I really want to work with you. You came highly recommended for my neighbor. Are you part of the own it ambassador program? Yes. And, I mean, that realtor might just go sign up. Yep. Social pressure. Yes. Yeah. Social pressure is market pressure. Right. Yes. And I mean, yes. I'm fine with whatever, but there's, there are a lot of people, especially the younger folks They they see it and they want to find solutions and, we haven't had a lot of good ones in the real estate industry. So we're super excited about this. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, um, a philanthropist, found CEO, entrepreneur, Marcus Lamonius, Lamonis. He was on the, he has, he had a uh, reality show related to turning around businesses, but he is, he is sort of an example of this top-down pressure. So you talk about grassroots, but now yeah. there's top-down pressure where, he is pushing and his he's very blatant and open about this that he wants to he wants to end the inequity and in access to education and so he's developing models to do that using you know business practices hmm. um and so i think it's interesting that you're getting it from both ways that grassroots support but just a few uh, um awakened people with money Mm-hmm. And get so much shit done with mm-hmm. this if they're if they're aware of it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about debunking. What are some when you have these conversations with people that maybe are skeptical to outright offended? <laughs> what are some of the things that they say to you? I can think of two off the top of my head. One is, well, $18,000 isn't enough for a down payment for a house, which is the assumption that black and brown people don't have any money to bring to the table. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, which is so false, right? It's this concept, you know, it's this immediate reaction to yeah. um, how much money people have and what their credit scores are and et cetera. So that is one. And then the other is, yeah, but the market is so crazy right now. Should should we really be, should black and brown people really be buying in this market? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that, because, that is- because I know what's best for yeah. all people. And therefore, yeah. maybe, maybe this isn't the right time for that. Right. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah. So those are, yeah. those are some of the tough ones that come up on a regular basis. Yeah. I think- from a debunking standpoint is 
I kind of touched on this earlier is this idea that, you know, that, that especially this happened on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday is this misquoting by people that, you know, it's a, he envisioned a colorblind society. You got to read the rest of the quote. Um, he said that a colorblind society was the result, basically, of fixing systemic injustice issues, addressing them. And I think that is one of the biggest myths or, or misconceptions about systemic racism that I want to point out is that um, you indeed may not be a racist. Maybe you're not. Okay, let's assume that you're not. Um, in the sense of overtly racist or, or a, a, a white supremacist, let's say. Okay. Um, let's that kind of racism, you know, like a KKK member. Um, so, so having, having, but having um, supremacy makes you overlook what someone else's experiences is and how the system that you're in is perpetuating that. It's a sense of supremacy of a better educated. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, um, I had access to more opportunities, but I didn't have privilege. I worked really hard mm -hmm. to get here. And I have to say again, getting real, real, as you said earlier, is I used to cringe at the concept of privilege because I grew up in a violent home in a violent and poor home and, and in a weird religion and all these other factors and didn't go to call. I mean, I went to college, but I dropped out a couple of times. Yeah, I worked hard and I did all that, but I didn't have to do that while being black or a woman or queer or whatever. Like I that and that was that realization back in 2020 for me of like, oh, this isn't about necessarily directly related to how I see people. It's how the system treats people mm -hmm. based off of these labels that have been affixed to them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and just how, how privilege for me also includes ease. And, and when I walk into a room and I look like everyone else and people like it, it includes a, a lot more than just my skin color. Um, but yeah. a lot of that comes with money and, and even if I don't feel like I have the money, I don't have to look very far within certain areas of my family. Um, and my dad works really, really hard. And yet when he walked into a bank as a white man, you know, he could be like, oh yeah, I saw you playing basketball at the park the other day. Like yeah. it just, it's the, the amount of ease that comes with creating connections where people will trust you and like you literally just based on how you look is ridiculous when it comes to opportunities, I think. Right. And there are, again, a little bit of, a little bit of Googling people can go see this of the the systemic oppression of black communities in particular, we go to the, you know, Tulsa race, um, right. The race murders and um, so many different examples. And we think, well, that was a long time ago. Well, it still happens just not directly that way, as you talked about through um, some of the practices that are out there and the effect, and people don't realize this, the effect of a, a systemic injustice can last for generations because it can be perpetuated by by the powers that be and the people that are being oppressed. And so we can say, you know, well, slavery was, um, you know, the Lincoln freed the slaves 165 years ago, whatever it was. Um, okay, that's true-ish. 
but that doesn't change the fact that there are not systemic issues. Yeah. And so, and like the appraisal industry was built on racism. Like it literally was built to show lenders where homes were located based on the color of people's skins. And so the fact that the appraisal system hasn't been completely dismantled and rebuilt, um, but people current, black and brown people currently are literally being robbed of money based on how their houses are appraising compared to yes. other. So like when, P and this is, we get this a lot in the real estate industry. Oh, that was a long time ago. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, yes. Bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. Exactly. It does happen. It um, 100% happens all of the time. Um, right. And, and people just don't hear the stories or they're not listening or it's not front and center. And the real estate industry has, they have the power and the ability to make it mandatory. Our fair housing education is set up to protect white realtors from getting in trouble. Here's what you can and can't say so that you don't get into trouble. That is how I experience fair housing education. Yes. There's so many examples of that right there of here's not how to improve the system. Here's how not to get in trouble. Yeah. You know, what are we really protecting? Because the real estate in the real the Realtors Association lobbied against the Fair Housing Act in 1968. They did not apologize for it until after George Floyd was murdered in August of 2020. Wow. They did not apologize for it until August of 2020. Right. Up, yeah. and, and that's just apologizing. That's not even righting any wrongs. You yeah, could, right. That's not you fixing anything. You couldn't join the Realtors Association as a Black person and, until I don't know what date, but it was like ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So any other myths that you see that you want to skewer? Um, about this, about this issue of systemic racism? I, I don't know myths or what we hear on a regular basis. Yeah, but that's okay. You covered it. And I just want to give you space because I, I talk a lot. Um, I talk a lot. And then when I get upset, I get like super heated. So uh, that's fine. No, it's passion. I don't. Yeah. Um, I think the one more before we get into the last D is um, the concept of upward mobility. Um, and there has been, there's been some, and this is again, why I am not a, you know, classic it's, I don't believe in necessarily that the government is the solution because they have not really proven and any consistent basis that they can do much. It's a very heavy hand. It's very clumsy. Um, like example being the Fair Housing Act was well-intentioned, like a lot of LBJ's initiatives or FDR's or other ones. They're well-intentioned, um, but they don't really get at the root issue. Um, and so when you think about something where we have seen this significant increase in income and economic income for black and brown people over the last 25 years. Um, what So people will point out, and they, again, this is the mythology, it's like, well, yeah, but black unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. Well, that's true, but that does not, that just means that there's upward mobility. It doesn't mean that there's not systemic racism. And that's there, income there, there are two different wealth. things. That's huh? income versus wealth. That's what I mean, right. Huge difference between income versus wealth. And when yes. you look at how much money has accumulated in real estate since yeah. the 1950s, so between like, right. you know, the night we'll, we'll go 1930s, 1940s through 1968, 
when 98% of the loans that were given were to white folks and, um, and neighborhoods were segregated, all of this. And now, I mean, reparations, hello, can they just, I mean, that's what the government really needs to be working on because we can't, we can't do that. We can talk about redistribution wealth, but as a white person and as a citizen, I'm not, I'm not in the position to work on reparations, but the race-based fund, the fact that they said, okay, now you can't discriminate based on race in 1968, but we're not going to actually create opportunities to support and financially uplift with money for based on race it there was like by that time when you understand how real estate works you can't it's not like when you change the law that now you can't discriminate in job interviews that did shift overnight i mean there's still plenty of yeah <laughs> ways for biases and all of that yeah. to get in the in the way but it it was something that could be policed differently i guess you could say than yeah. neighborhoods that had already been created and schools that had already have so much wealth being poured into it based on taxes. Um, and just in case there are people who are listening that really do understand the 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 into the weeds of it, own it is special in that, or the way that we have addressed that issue so that we are in compliance with fair housing is that we are partnered with a school, um, one city schools, and once we expand, we can partner with other organizations where the families or the folks that attend, 85% of them are families of color. So we are in compliance because we offer the program to all families at One City Schools, but, but we're, very un, we're very intentional and unapologetic about the fact that this is for building Black wealth. Um, but because of the fair housing laws, we can't make it available to all of Madison and only Black and Brown people because then we would get sued. Um, mm -hmm. but because like just the way the system has created ways to ex explicitly deny or not even explicitly, sometimes it's not explicit, it's coded. We are kind of trying to fight it in that same way. Right. Yeah. I will point out too, these are not going to be the exact statistics, but, um, roughly 98% of commercial land is owned by a white person or white group, um, uh, the two, the two or three percent, whatever the smaller percentage is, that's not owned by white people are owned by um, people. They're owned by Chinese billionaires, Saudi, you know, huh. Saudi people, people from Saudi Arabia, um, people from other oppressive systems, as it were, um, in a lot of ways. And the idea of building wealth through commercial real estate is still got this massive race gap. Um, yes. Yes. And there. yes. And that, from my perspective, because I see this all the time, is that they all know each other. And then when they're going to sell, they talk to their friends and yes. then they just end up selling it to a friend's kid or, a, you know, yeah. like yeah. the amount of transactions that happen word of mouth once you get into that level. I mean, even in the homeownership level, but it's yeah. it's just bananas. It is. So last day is debate. Is there anything that I said that you want to challenge? Oh, do I want to challenge anything? Challenge, debate, tussle, friendly. Um, I don't know. I think it wouldn't be so bad if white people could acknowledge the racism that is within them without feeling all weird about it. I mean, from my perspective, if the media is 
has so much racism in it. If like, if all of the systems, if we, if we can acknowledge that all the systems are, have a lot of racism or were built with racism in them, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be weird for us not to have racism within us? I think it's a branding thing. I think it, 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 it because again, I'm going to go into the, my, my, my brand poetry, brand nerd part of this is language matters significantly. The way that um, the gay rights movement changed from talking about rights to love was transformational and shifting public opinion as an example. And so when we use the language, especially if we're trying to create behavior change or a paradigm shift, we have to use language that either makes someone, um, it, it makes, it, it opens up the opportunity for a conversation or shuts down a conversation. Yeah. Coming from rural America, if I was to say to somebody, well, you you need to examine the racism with inside of you, that would shut down the conversation. And, okay. and, and, and which would serve no purpose because they cannot, no one can get enlightenment if they don't have a conversation. So that's where I think it's, we have racial biases that are built into us because of the systems that we were in. And I've had that conversation many times. Like I use the term racial biases or systemic bias. And then there's this little glimmer of like, okay, I could see that. I could see where you're talking about these little benefits here and there. Um, but I think, I think language is really, really important about how we talk about these things and so that's just my response to that. No, it's, I mean, it's so true. And my struggle is I, I, I sometimes don't feel authentic if I am not talking in the way that I feel and believe. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I see that's, but, that's you though. I know, but my job is to build bridges. Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's to be as radical maybe. AF. Um, yeah. but I have gotten that feedback is. where I, I should change my language sometimes. And yeah, I, and I'm not suggesting that you change your language. I'm not, the boss of it, but, uh, but I'm saying just from a branding perspective about being able to have conversations and, um, I, I mean, I jokingly say at times, I think my mission in life is to make white people uncomfortable, um, as a white man, a straight white American man. And, um, but I'm also aware for myself, speaking for myself, that I need to be able to relate to someone enough to understand how they arrived at their perspective and then offer some alternative opinions without blowing it up into a right versus wrong or us versus them or all that. And that is a newish skill for me. Like people that know me a long time know me as a flame, you know, flamethrower and a bomb dropper related to a lot of different opinions but i'm i'm learning that most people arrive at their paradigms because they simply haven't been challenged um and you look at examples like again the um gay rights movement how changing the language was helped shift the conversation shift the public sentiment so well, that was fun and invigorating. And I and I think it's fascinating too, as we did. I, you didn't know what questions I was going to ask. Hell, I didn't know what questions I was going to ask entirely. I kind of just really go with the flow. But speaking to your passion, I love that you have passion behind this. I love that you're putting you're putting your your heart, soul 
uh, intellectual power, financial power into this. It's such a great role model for being an agent of what we call a history shaper, a system shaker. It's, it's a great embodiment of those ideas. And I will repeat what I said. If you're a person that has done the inner work to elevate your consciousness, you do have a calling. And that calling always, always, always has a social justice component because that's how things change. So yeah. thanks, thanks I, for coming on. I totally agree with you, Justin, because when I was at that point of like, realizing how gross real estate was, I was like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore, Carlos. Like I can't. And my racial justice coach, Ananda Marilli at the time was like, and that's exactly why you need to stay in it, yes. Sarah. Yes. <laughs> Just do it differently. Yes. But don't you, the privilege to be able to exit is like, hello, that's exactly yes. what we're talking about. Um, totally. Yes. And I'm doing- can I yeah. plug some of my free resources? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and we'll put the link, I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Okay. Go ahead. So I, I worked with some people on a racial justice toolkit for real estate professionals, which I think is awesome. And anyone in, in any way wants to work with it, they can. Um, and then I have free resources on my website that deal a lot with the same things that you do in terms of conversations that are messy and important mm -hmm. and challenging and maybe awesome. slightly radical. And yeah. then of course, I wrote a book that. Yeah, that's right. I'll link to that too. <laughs> Dreaming in Spanish. Yeah. I should send it to you, Justin. You should. When I will. Have, when I hit pause here, well, I'll give you my address. You don't <laughs> want to give your address out right now? No, no, no. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you.